The reading is taken from the Bible, Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41. So that's on the Church Bible, page 1116. Act, chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrine of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says the gods made by human hands are no god at all. They endanger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in, up, in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the great into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed it, Alexander to the front, and they shouted instruction to him. He, he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowds and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from the heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeliable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temple nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, 
the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he, said, he has said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. It is our prayer, Lord God, that you would indeed be glorified, glorified in, in us, uh, in us individually, in us as a church family together, uh, glorified as we think uh, uh, and read from your word now. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Do grab a seat again. Um, so, uh, just a few words of introduction to, to, to our next reading. I think we've got some slides uh, just to, to help you with that. Um, so, so we left Paul in Ephesus there uh, with that big riot going on. And he's pretty soon on the move again and decides that he's going to head up north um, into Macedonia. His, his plan now is to get back to Jerusalem um, before he then eventually makes this final great trip to Rome. Um, so, so that's his plan. Uh, but meanwhile, he heads uh, up into to Macedonia there. Uh, from there, he travels over into Greece, uh, spends some more time uh, in Greece. And initially, he plans to catch a boat uh, and uh, whiz straight back to Jerusalem that way. But there's some kind of plot, uh, which means he has to change his plans uh, for safety, and instead retraces his steps, um, heads back up into Macedonia. Um, and then there's a boat trip uh, around from... The, oh, no, well, something funny happens up there. I'll tell you about that first, which is that um, there's this funny instance where Paul preaches for such a long time um, that a young man called Eutychus um, really finds it a little bit overwhelming, um, and Paul's preaching on and on into the night, and eventually Eutychus not only falls asleep, but actually falls out of a window and dies. Um, but happily, Paul, astonishingly and miraculously, uh, brings him back to, to life again. Um, extraordinary incident. Uh, it's got to be a little warning, hasn't it, to me, about long sermons. Um, but I think a little bit of an encouragement that to date nobody has died during one of my sermons. So I, I, so I, I, I see this positively, really. Um, anyway, uh, enough of that. Um, they then sail on past Ephesus down to a place called Miletus. Um, and that's about 30 miles south of Ephesus. Um, and we're going to pick the story up there where Paul summons the leaders of the church in Ephesus to come to him, uh, for him to speak to them with kind of like some final instructions to them. Um, and that's what we're going to read now. It, it's both remarkably personal and remarkably passionate. Um, and as you listen to this speech, I'd, I'd love you to just have your ears out for a couple of things. First, just, just think how this is kind of like Jesus. Remember in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus resolutely set his face to head to Jerusalem, even though he knew the trouble that awaited him there. Um, and that's true also here of the Apostle Paul. 
But then notice a way in which it's not like Jesus. Because while Jesus was in all sorts of ways isolated and alone, the Apostle Paul, and it's very striking in this passage, is surrounded by companions and with warmth of fellowship. Uh, so just look, look out for those two things um, in, uh, in this address. Um, Lydia's going to come uh, and read. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, as we listen to this um, powerful uh, address from Paul uh, to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, help us to, uh, to learn more of you uh, through it. Amen. The second reading is taken from Book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 to 38, page 1117 on Church Bibles. Verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come, come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, 
I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved him most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Lydia, thank you very much for reading. There is so much here. We're going to dive straight in. I've got three simple headings. Uh, I want us to look at what Paul says, how he says it, and the impact or the effect uh, that it has. I hope those headings help us. Um, First, what Paul says, which strikingly is is everything. It's the whole thing. Um, That's uh, what he declares. Or more specifically, the whole will of God. Uh, You see it there in verse 26 where Paul says, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. Why? Why is he innocent of the blood of anyone? Well, because, he says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. If I'd held it back, then I'd be guilty, because you wouldn't have this word of salvation. But I'm not guilty of that because I have declared to you the whole counsel of God, everything that God has to say. In other words, I've not picked and chosen the bits that I like or or the bits that I think you'll like. I've not picked out the bits that are comfortable to say that fit in with our culture. I've just said it all. And that's in contrast to others that Paul identifies in verse 29, where he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after you, after them. So be on your guard. See, Paul's saying, I'm not going to be like them. I'm not going to be like those savage wolves who do such terrible damage by twisting, changing, remolding the truth into another form. So nothing left out. Paul says the whole thing. It's one of the reasons that here at Christchurch, our intention is to work our way through every bit of the Bible. Um, It's why we preached on Amos recently in the evening. Truth be told, it wasn't a very comfortable few weeks. Amos is full of words that describe the judgment of God. Very easy in our contemporary culture to think, well, that's not going to go down very well. Let's, Let's just... We won't do that. We'll do something else. We'll do the Sermon on the Mount again. It'd be easy to do that, wouldn't it? But actually, if we don't understand that there is a judgment, then it makes no sense talking about a rescue, does it? What are you being saved from if there is no judgment to escape from? See, it's really important that you preach the whole thing. Otherwise, it just doesn't work, does it? It doesn't make sense. See, suppose I have here the directions to your holiday destination. That's quite exciting, isn't it? You'd quite like to know about that. Um, And imagine I give you just some edited highlights. So, So I read here, drive out of your house, turn left down Cherry Hinton High Street, then first right past Edinburgh Castle, and then the cottage is just beyond the end of the lock. It's useless, isn't it? Because the, 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 the little bits 
with all the bits missed out in between, don't provide you with what you need. Well, it's the same thing, the whole counsel of God. He has said everything that we need, uh, and we need to speak out everything. So, notice Paul speaks everything. But notice also how Paul describes his own message. Uh, First in verse 21, where he says that he has declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. In verse 24, he describes it as the good news of God's grace. In verse 32, the word of his grace. I do hope that you've got grace clear. It's the kind of word that we, that we use very easily, very frequently. Is it clear in your head? It is the idea of undeserved favor. See, suppose I hire you to come and decorate my house. And you're very pleased because cost of living crisis, you need a bit of extra money. So you're going to come and decorate my house. But then suppose you fall ill. So you're not able to come and decorate my house. And because I need to get the work done, I find somebody else and they decorate my house instead. But then suppose I turn up at your house with an envelope and I give it to you and you open it up and in amazement you discover that it's the money that I said I'd pay you for decorating my house. And you say, but I never did decorate your house. And I said, no, that's all right though. I want you to have it. Well, that would be grace, wouldn't it? That would be undeserved favour. You haven't earned it, you didn't do the job, but I'm paying you anyway. But actually, it's more than that. It's not just that we get what we haven't earned, it's actually that we get the very opposite of what we deserve. See, suppose if instead of just, you never turned up and decorated my house, suppose you turned up and trashed my house. You smash the windows, you gouge stuff out of the walls, and you stain the carpets. And then I turn up with my little envelope and give you the money. And now you think, well, this is really weird. But that would be grace. Do we see that? That is what God has done for us. We have taken him for granted. We have ignored him. In all sorts of ways, we have misused, trashed, his world. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to give you an inheritance in glory just the same. That's grace. I hope we get that. In all sorts of ways, that is what Noah is declaring himself to believe in, in the baptism that we're going to have downstairs in a bit. He's not saying, look, I'm a very, I'm a very respectable, I'm a very, very fine, upstanding young man, so I'd love to join the church. And this baptism is the sign of, you know, you accepting me as, as most excellent. That's, that's not what the baptism is saying, is it? The baptism is saying there is grace for Noah, for any one of us, which can cleanse us and give us new life, even though we don't deserve it. Okay, so first, what Paul speaks. Second, how he says it. And and first notice that uh, over and over again he says, I declare this to you without hesitation. Uh, It says it twice. First in verse 20, 
If you've got it open in front of you, just keep noticing this. It's, there's a lot here. Um, in verse 20, he says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And in verse 27, he says, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, I think partly that's what we've already said. Um, even though he can see that some of the things he wants to say would be unpopular, uh, wouldn't fit with the way the world sees things. He's going to say them anyway. He's not going to hesitate. But I think there's another element here. I think he knows that saying this stuff is going to get him into trouble. Um, verse 22. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I'm not going to hesitate. I've just got one job, and it is to declare the whole counsel of God, to testify to the good news of God's grace. Paul sees himself as a man with a, with a message, with a message of, of such importance that, of course, he's going to get on and do it. So, imagine this week, it was your job to tell the Queen that the Prime Minister had resigned. Well, I mean, you're not going to think, oh, I'll leave it for a bit. It's an episode of EastEnders I'm looking forward to. I'll watch that. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll watch Norrie, Norrie playing in the, uh, in the semi-final. Wouldn't take long, sadly. You wouldn't do that. Would you? you wouldn't sort of put it off, say, I'll watch a bit of telly, watch a bit of sport, knowing that you had something of such importance to do. That's what Paul is saying here. Unhesitatingly, urgently, he gets on and does it. And we also learn in verse 20 that Paul, the other way that Paul did this testifying is both publicly and from house to house. It's fascinating, isn't it? What, what I think this tells us is that as a church, it is not enough for people like me to stand up front and preach sermons and for people like all of us to go home and read our Bible quietly in our quiet times or our devotions. That's not enough. You need something more if you're going to get a mature church. And that something more is to push the word in, to get it to land. So, so, think about a sermon like this. A sermon like this is scattergun, isn't it? You know, I, I have sort of, you know, 10 or 12 minutes of speaking Okay, okay, okay. A little bit more than that, um, you, you grant me. But, but I'm just, I just declare stuff to all of you at the same time. And so it's sort of scattergun. It's not specified. I, I don't say, Scott, I think, actually, what this means for you is, and I don't say, you know, Ben, I think, looking at the... Of course I don't. That would be, be really weird in a public setting like this. But Paul does do that house to house, doesn't he? That's the point. He does it both publicly 
to a large number of people together. But then he goes house to house to drive it home in the detail so that each of us might work out for ourselves what this means for us. That's so important that, that, that you have both of those. Now, it could be that it's me or David or Rachel or, in due course, Fiona, when she joins the staff team, call round to chat with you. But, but of course, it, it didn't need to be us. In fact, it, it needs not to be us because there's too many of us. This is something that we need to do for one another. That's why we gather ourselves together in small groups, so that we have a, a, a smaller context in which the, the kind of the word that we think about on a Sunday, kind of more scattergun, can then get drilled down into the detail of our individual lives through those discussions in a small group or at Grafted as we think it through, or, or just in our private friendship conversations. See, in all sorts of ways, the, the vision of, of biblical counselling is this, is to say that there needs to be this one-anothering ministry as we help one another to work out what the Bible's teaching means for us individually. Uh, we need one another to help us uh, to do that. Which reminds me again to say, if you're not in a small group, then, then do join one over the summer. Um, uh, there being uh, some new groups coming together in the autumn. Great time uh, to join uh, so that the word can be pushed in uh, to each of our lives in that way. Now, we've seen what Paul speaks, everything, uh, and the grace of God. We've seen how he speaks it without hesitation, and both in public ministry but also individually, to help it to land. Uh, and then thirdly, I just want us to, to notice the effect that this ministry has, um, which I think largely is to notice in this passage the emotion that it stirs. It's a really emotional passage, isn't it? You catch that? So uh, notice the emotion that Paul himself describes, first of all. He says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. Verse 31, he says, I never stop warning each of you night and day with tears. There's nothing sort of matter of fact about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It's not just, oh, it's my job. It's just a duty to carry out, and I'll just get it done. No, no, he conducts his ministry with tears, with, with the stirring of emotion. And I guess sometimes... That will have been the tears that arose because of the pain and struggle, perhaps the trouble that came to him from the persecution that we were thinking about a moment ago. I guess sometimes it'll been tears because it broke his heart to find that people wouldn't listen and turned away. And I guess sometimes it would have been tears of joy as he rejoiced to see people's lives being transformed as God did that lovely work of building people up in Christ and building his church. And it makes me wonder, are we emotional enough, those of us who are believers this morning, 
Are we emotional enough about our faith? Are you passionate about this message of grace, knowing that it's life or death? Wouldn't that stir an emotion? Are you troubled by the idea of savage wolves coming in, bringing ruin to the church of Jesus Christ? Isn't that just such an awful prospect? I mean, he uses strong language, doesn't he? Savage wolves in a flock of sheep is not pretty. He's deliberately upping the ante. Should stir some sense of, that would be awful. I really would care. I should care. I must care. I do care about such a thing happening. And are we moved enough by the love of Jesus who is described here as having bought us with his own blood. Now, again, it's a strong image, isn't it? You know, what did it cost him to give you that grace? See, it's a silly example, wasn't it, I used earlier on. You know, just hand over an envelope. A little envelope, some money in, in my illustration. It just seems very casual, very trivial, doesn't it? Jesus shed his own blood to make it possible for you and I to have an inheritance in glory. It stirs, it must stir our emotions. And maybe if it doesn't, maybe we've not got it yet. And, and then finally notice that the, the effect that this ministry has on relationships, on community. I'd love to spend much longer on this passage, but... Uh, we haven't time, but, but come to the final paragraph, verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. It's a beautiful, tender scene, isn't it? Grown men weeping together because of the depth of love that they felt for one another. And I know that some of us might want to say, well, that's really not me, actually. Actually, I'm, I'm British. For those of us that are, I don't do that sort of thing. Thank you. But, but you know, I, I don't think we can hide behind that. I don't think we can just claim a sort of a, a cultural sort of mode of operating as a defense against the kind of rich emotional engagement that the church of God should create, that the gospel should stir in us. And in a sense, don't we know this is what we really want? Don't we know that this kind of depth of love is good? People who care so much about you that they'd weep? at the thought that they weren't going to see you again. You want those kind of relationships, don't you? Don't we? And, and of course, at our best, that is just the kind of relational network we are forming as a church. Now, forgive me um, for a personal note at this point. I, you, you really had enough um, personal stuff about me and Beth last week. Um, but... I kind of find myself wanting to express my huge thanks to you from Beth and from me for all of the things that you wrote in cards um, 
last week. We, Beth and I have had a pretty emotional week reading uh, the things that you have written to us. Uh, and again and again, um, what I find is that many of you have written about the hard times, uh, the times when, in different ways, uh, either Beth or I have been with you, met with you in times of sadness, either our sadness or your sadness, our struggles or your struggles, where there have been tears. Uh, and that is right and proper, to, to know that we are able to share those struggles and share those tears together. And it's been a precious thing uh, to read of that. And you see that in all sorts of ways, this is what the gospel allows. This is what grace allows. Because without grace, you worry how I'm coming across. You worry, am I doing well enough? You worry, what, what will people think of me? You worry about your reputation and your image. Because actually performing, being well thought of, that matters a lot to you without grace. Because you want some sense of, of worth and value. But when you get grace, you know that before the throne that really matters, in the eyes of the one whose gaze is the most important, you are received and accepted and loved. He says you're okay. He says he receives you. And that produces a freedom, a, a, an ability to be honest, because you're not defending your reputation. You're not frightened of people seeing you as you really are, because you are able to acknowledge who you really are and know that even like that, God loves you. Grace has that profoundly liberating effect as it works its way into us and to, into our community. Grace lets us be ourselves, honest with ourselves, and honest with one another. Uh, let's pray uh, that God might create, by his grace, uh, a community that is more and more like that. Uh, Father God, we thank you for, for grace that receives us, even though we are not deserving. And indeed, we deserve from you a judgment and not blessing. Uh, but you have chosen in Christ uh, to treat us with blessing and uh, how grateful we are afresh. Uh, and what a difference it makes uh, to us and to our relationships with one another. Uh, please help us uh, to help one another to understand this grace uh, more fully and more richly, to be more and more of the people uh, that you intend us to be. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to continue uh, to pray. And Lydia is going to lead us as we do that.